Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Well, hello there. It's your good fortune to be listening to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're joined by Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, how are you today? I'm doing great. How about yourself, Brad? Fantastic. I understand we're going to be learning more about uh, one of the members of the founding generation, uh, Roger Sherman. That's right. And I tell you, I'm a little bit hoarse. I just got back from a week in western South Dakota lecturing to people about Lakota-Indian relations there and talking about the four founding fathers there on Mount Rushmore. And Rapid City is really, really a lovely town. One of the things they have is they have every one of the presidents with a life-size statue on the street corners in the downtown area. And these are really well done, really impressive, and you can get a lecture about each one of them. The only two that are not there yet are President Trump and President Biden. So I told the group, without saying which is which, that they have every president here except the best one and the worst one. And but anyway, one of the problems is out there, I've come from 3,000 feet above sea level and zero humidity to Alabama with 300 feet and about 10,000% humidity. And so I've come down with a little bit of a cold, but I think I'll be able to talk okay. But you know, when we think about this man, Roger Sherman, the scripture passage of Isaiah thirty fifteen comes to mind. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength. Because that would characterize Roger Sherman. Rufus Griswold, a delegate to the Constitutional Convention, said this about him after observing him for quite some time at the convention. And at the convention, Sherman speak, delivered speeches 138 times. That means he spoke at the convention more frequently than any other delegate except Governor Morris, James Wilson, and James Madison. Here's what Griswold said about Sherman. He said, he is no orator, and yet not a speaker in the convention is more effective. The basis of his power is found first in the thorough conviction of his integrity. His countrymen are satisfied that he is a good man, a real patriot, with no little or sinister or personal ends in view. Next, he addresses the reason with arguments, logically arrayed, so clear, so plain, so forcible, that as they have convinced him, they carry conviction to others who are dispassionate. And we think about this man, he was born the 19th of April of 1721, which means that he was 66 years old at the convention, and that means he was the second oldest delegate there, only Ben Franklin was older. He was born in a poverty-stricken family in Connecticut, described as an old Puritan. He began his life as a shoemaker, and I've suggested that everything that happened to him afterward reflected going downhill after that, because he went from the respectable occupation of shoemaker to being a surveyor, and then he sunk lower to be a lawyer and a justice of the peace, a judge, a state legislator, a member of the governor's council, 
a member of Congress, and a delegate to the Constitutional Convention. He was very much involved in the affairs of the nation. He was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence and served on the committee with Jefferson and others to draft that declaration. He also served on the committee to adopt and draft the Articles of Confederation, was a signer of that document, likewise of the Constitutional Convention, and he was in Congress and was a signer also of the Northwest Ordinance. So the four basic enabling documents of American organic law, the Declaration, the Articles, the Constitution, and the Northwest Ordinance, Sherman signed every one of these. So we see how actively he was involved. John Adams said of Roger Sherman that he was an old Puritan, and as honest as an angel, and as firm in the cause of American independence as Mount Atlas. He added, destitute of all literary and scientific education, but such as he acquired in his own exertions, he was one of the most sensible men in the world, the clearest head and steadiest heart. Patrick Henry described him, along with James or George Mason of Virginia, as the greatest statesman he ever knew. And he said of the first Congress, the first men in that body were Washington, Richard Henry Lee, and Roger Sherman. Historian Horace Morgan says of Sherman that he was noted and esteemed for his calmness of nature and evenness of disposition. His rationality was his distinguishing trait. Common sense in him rose almost to genius. He dressed in the New England style of the time with plain clothes and close-cropped hair, and with others from especially some of the Middle and Southern states dressing in polished wigs and elegant dress. He stood out as a plain-spoken man there. One of the South Carolina delegates noted his uniqueness and described him as awkward and possessed of that strange New England cap which runs through his public as well as his private speaking and makes everything that is connected with him grotesque and laughable. Well, that sounds like quite an insult. But then he went on to say about Sherman that he deserves infinite praise. No man has a better heart or a clearer head. I am told he sits on the bench that serves on the court in Connecticut and is very correct in his discharge of his judicial functions. In the early part of his life, he was a shoemaker, but despising the lowness of his condition, he turned almanac maker and so progressed upwards to a judge. He has been several years a member of Congress and discharged the duties of his office with honor and credit to himself and advantage to the state he represented. Now, to describe him further, to understand where he was coming from, we need to remember that New England, and probably especially Connecticut, where he is from, were the center of American Calvinism. Roger Sherman Boardman wrote of him, the Puritan tradition of the earlier day were born in him. And an upright and somewhat unimaginative Puritan, we find him throughout. Not that he exhibited the narrow, illiberal, sour aspect we ascribe with scant social justice or scant justice to this name, Sherman was open-minded and forward-looking, 
but the stern sense of duty, the New England conscience, was ever his guiding star. He was the third of seven children. Two of his brothers became ministers of the gospel. His parents regularly attended the congregational church and faithfully observed the Sabbath in his home. And Sherman learned to read using this basic text, first the Bible, then some of Cotton Mather's works, especially sermons, and the Westminster Confession. <coughs> and when he attended the community schoolhouse, he used the Christian-oriented textbook there, the New England Primer. So interesting to see this man's early life. Now, when he would be in his late teens and early 20s, the first great, great awakening, that great religious revival broke out in America. The pastors like George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, and others that are preaching revival, and Roger Sherman being very active in the Congregational Church there in New Melford, Connecticut, was very interested in this revival. And what we learn about him in this regard is that the revival divided some of the New England Calvinists or Puritans into two camps. There were those who were called the New Light, and the New Lights favored awakening. That is, they believed in the need for conversion. Everybody had to go through a born-again or salvation experience. But then there were the Old Lights, and the Old Lights weren't just traditionalists who didn't want any spirituality. Rather, they were concerned that the awakening might be unstable, might be emotional, and it might lead to an outward conversion that wasn't in line with a consistent Christian life. Roger Sherman at first favored the old life position, saying that we need the threatenings of divine law against impertinence, penitent sinners, and, but he gradually moved toward the new light position and saw that in addition to the threatenings of law, we also need the promise of the gospel and the new birth. We'll see more about him as time goes on. Welcome back to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Again, we're with Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Learning today about Roger Sherman, another stalwart member of the founding generation. Yes, and we're going to see how stalwart and how important Roger Sherman really was toward the type of government that we have today. As a young man, shoemaker and so on, Roger Sherman was very involved at the Congregational Church and an elder in the Congregational Church. And in his particular church, the pastor was Jonathan Edwards, Jr., that is the son of that famous intellectual and famous pastor, Jonathan Edwards. And anyway, Jonathan Edwards, Jr. was a good friend of Sherman, called him, in fact, a great and good friend. And he said concerning Sherman, he could, with reputation to himself and improvement to others, converse on the most important subjects of theology, 
I confess myself to have been often entertained, and in the course of my long and intimate acquaintance with him, to have been much improved by his observations on the principal subjects of doctrinal and practical divinity. And occasionally, there were issues that came up where there was some division of the congregation. Roger Sherman was usually a very faithful supporter of Jonathan Edwards and his position. And on one occasion, when there was there were some of the church that favored universalism, the belief that everyone ultimately is going to be saved, and there was an element that held to this in the New England churches kind of as a reaction against the old Puritanism. But Sherman argued very strongly against universalism, said it was very erroneous, and it believed it will lead to relaxation of the restraints on vice arising from the threatenings of divine law against impenitent sinners. I think we are as much bound to believe the threatenings as the promise of the gospel. He occasionally wrote sermons as well. In one sermon he wrote a short sermon on the duty of self-examination preparatory to receiving the Lord's Supper. Now that doesn't sound like the most catchy title, and today when we write sermons, we want to put a title on them, and we think it's going to arouse people's attention and cause them to pay attention. And if we send out our bulletins to our congregation in advance, we want it to be something that, hey, i got to go to church this morning and hear that. But they didn't do that in those days. They used titles that were descriptive and accurate, but people at that time didn't seem to be quite as sensational in their mentality as people are today. But he declared that self-examination previous to an approach to the Holy Supper of the Lord is a necessary, though I fear, too much neglected duty. And then he listed five points on which the believer should examine himself. These five were his knowledge of the gospel scheme of salvation, his repentance, his faith in Jesus Christ, his love to God and man, and finally, his obedience to the commands of God. And the Christian, therefore, should confess his sins before communion, should renew his surrender to Christ, admiring and thankfully acknowledging the riches of redeeming love, and earnestly imploring that divine assistance which may enable us to live no more to ourselves, but to him who loved us and gave himself to die for us. He was a very strong supporter of Yale College and Yale had been established as a Christian college primarily for the preparation of pastors. And some say Yale was even established in Connecticut as a reaction against what they saw as Unitarian or liberalizing tendencies at Harvard. But he was a good friend of Timothy Dwight, the <coughs> president of Yale. And from there, as he moved on to a judgeship and then to the legislature, he embarks on a political career. And in that political career, he remains faithful to God and takes biblical principles and makes them apply to the issues of government that are going on at the time. For example, on one occasion, he looked at a proposal to bring in a congregation Episcopal or Church of England bishop over the United States. And anyway, 
this was a great concern to him because in New England, or rather in England itself, you had a state church, and so if you were the church bishop over the entire country, that meant that you had considerable political sway as well. And Roger Sherman objected to this, but he went on to say that if the bishop is divested of the power annexed to that office by the common law of England, so that he have no power over the civil or religious interests of other denominations, then he said, we shall be more easy about this. He noted with pleasure, following the surrender of Court Wallace at Yorktown, the dispatches from General Washington were received yesterday morning, and at two o'clock in the afternoon, Congress went in a body to the Lutheran Church, where divine service, suitable for the occasion, was performed by the Reverend Mr. Duffel, one of the chaplains of Congress. He was one who believed also that the Bible has a role to play in the way we apply law, for example, in the issue of divorce, what could be a ground for divorce? Well, when we set that out in our colonial statutes, he thought, we need to look to what the Bible has to say about divorce, and only those grounds in the Bible can be accepted as grounds that we would allow in our state or colonial laws. He also noted a proposal that someone who committed a certain offense could be subject to 500 lashes. He objected to this, noting that in the scriptures, 40 lashes was the maximum. And anyway, so he said, we can't go contrary to the scripture on this. But probably the thing we notice most about him is his action at the Constitutional Convention. Now there at the convention, the biggest issues that they were facing were how do we give government enough power to govern effectively? But secondly, how do we limit that power so the government that we create here does not become tyrannical and oppressive? And we have some of the delegates, some like James Wilson and Governor Morris and Alexander Hamilton and others that are on the side of having a pretty strong federal government. We have others, like George Mason, that are afraid of federal power because they know that those who run the government have the same nature as everybody else, and so they're afraid of giving government too much power. Roger Sherman was more on the side of the state's rights position. In other words, he's one of those who wanted to limit federal power more than some of the others would. But he was open-minded, and he was able to suggest compromises sometimes that, given his nature of common sense and realism, could work pretty effectively. For example, one of the issues that the states were divided on was, should we apportion the members of Congress based on the population of each state, or should each state have an equal number of members of Congress. At this time, they were thinking about only one House of Congress. And the larger states are saying, well, look, if these smaller states have the same number of congressmen as we do, then each one of their people is getting represented disproportionately to the people in our state. In the small states, they're arguing if the larger states have more population, more members of Congress than we do, then we'll be swallowed up, and our voices won't even be heard. 
And then they argued on the basis of modesty, too, where modesty argued that in international law, every nation has an equal voice in international law, regardless of that nation's size. And if this is to be a union of states, then each state should have an equal voice. Well, Roger Sherman proposes a solution. And the solution he proposes is the same solution that he had proposed at the Articles of Confederation. His suggestion wasn't adopted there, but it will be adopted here in the Constitutional Convention. to Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law, talking today about the life of Roger Sherman. And Colonel, I believe uh, we've just about reached the point where he is participating in the Constitutional Convention. That is correct. He's participating in the convention. As we saw, he spoke at the convention 138 times. That means he's one of the four who spoke most frequently at the convention. But as we saw, the issue was an argument between the larger states and the smaller states as to whether representation in Congress should be on the basis of population, larger states having more, or on the basis of states, each state being equal. Back at the time of the 200th anniversary of our Constitution, back in, eight, in 17, eight, or 1987, the Doonesbury cartoon had a series of cartoons about the Constitutional Convention. And I remember one of them where they have the delegates back there in the inn that night, and there they are carrying out a large argument in the inn, so saying, no, large states should have more. No, all states should be equal back and forth. And in the next room, there is a traveling peddler who has a headache and can't get any sleep because of all the argument going on on the other side of the wall there. And... Finally, he bangs on the wall and says, have one house by population and the other house by states. Now shut up and let me get some sleep. <laughs> and the dollars say, idea. That's where it comes from. Well, I can tell you that most scholars have rejected the Doonesbury thesis. And they reject it because, in fact, the suggestion came from Roger Sherman. It was he on the convention floor, who proposed having two houses of Congress, and that's the first time it was mentioned on the floor, although he would have gotten that idea from other places. For example, he proposed the idea when they were drafting the Articles of Confederation. It wasn't accepted at that time, probably because they saw the federal government as having such a limited scope that only one house would be necessary. He perhaps got the idea also from looking to England, where you have the House of Commons and the House of Lords. But he suggested have a house, House of Representatives, where we have representation on the basis of population, the larger states having more congressmen than the smaller, and then have a Senate in which each state has an equal number of senators. And the delegates bought off on that suggestion. And so the reason we have two houses today really is in large part due to the influence of Roger Sherman. That idea of having two houses, we sometimes call it the Sherman Compromise, 
sometimes called it the Great Compromise. And it was probably one of the really, really decisive points in the Constitutional Convention. It got us over a major hurdle that they were arguing about and enabled the convention to proceed to resolve the other issues. But in general, as we saw, he was a defender of states' rights. He was an opponent of strong federal power. But as a churchman, we see something else that he did. And that's that at the time when the delegates were having a great deal of difficulty and they seemed to be on the verge of almost breaking up the convention, arguments, for example, about whether slaves should be considered as persons for purposes of taxation and purposes of representation. At this point, you may recall that Ben Franklin stood up and he made a motion for daily prayer. In that motion, he said that I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men which demonstrates that Franklin clearly was not a deist. His deist did not believe that God was involved in the affairs of men. Franklin went on to say, and if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labored that in vain that build it. I firmly believe this. And I believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. And so Franklin moved that we invite a pastor to come in every morning and have prayer with us so we can continue. Roger Sherman, Franklin's the oldest man, Roger Sherman's the second. Roger Sherman immediately stands up and seconds Franklin's motion. But the motion was not accepted, but it wasn't accepted because they didn't want prayer. It was accepted because several were concerned, well, we're so many different denominations. Can we agree on having a pastor come in? And then Alexander Hamilton observed that, you know, we can't really bring in a pastor without paying a pastor, that we can't muzzle the ox and labor is worthy of his hire. And we are without funds here. We have no appropriation of funds to pay a pastor to come in. And one other delegate said, you know, we should have been doing this from the beginning. But what's going to be the reaction outside if in the middle of this we suddenly start having pastors come in and pray? They're going to start thinking that maybe there's a real disaster going on here. Anyway, so the convention adjourned without voting on Franklin's motion. And when they reconvened, I believe that was on a Friday, when they reconvened the next week, they did not take it up again. But it seemed like the very motion that Franklin made and that Sherman seconded had the effect of producing a calming and unifying effect on the convention. And things seemed to go more smoothly from that point on. Sherman experienced sorrow in his life. One of these took place with the death of his son, William. William died at age 37, and Sherman's daughter, Elizabeth, wrote to assure her father that before William died, he expressed penitence for sins and his belief in the necessity of atonement for Christ. 
Sherman was in Congress at the time, but he wrote for to his wife, it is my earnest prayer that this providence may be suitably regarded by me and all the family, and especially of the surviving children of our family and William's child that may be excited to be always in an actual readiness for death. And even though the grandchildren were baptized, he said, for those who have come of age, it is indispensably necessary for them to give their cordial consent to the covenant of grace, and that it is their duty to make a public profession of religion and attend to all the ordinances of the gospel. <coughs> 1770, he wrote a letter to his wife, Rebecca. And in that letter, he said, this is your birthday. Mine was the 30th of last month. <clears throat> May we so remember our days as to apply our hearts to wisdom, that is, true religion. Psalm 90, 30, or Psalm 90, verse 12. That passage says, So teach us to number our days that we may get us a heart of wisdom. I remain affectionately yours. Roger Sherman. Sherman died on July 23rd of 1789. Edwards says concerning him at that time that even though he had such a good knowledge of theology, his proper line was politics. For usefulness and excellence in this line, he was qualified not only by his knowledge of human nature, he had a happy talent of judging what was feasible and what was not feasible of what men would hear, what men would bear, and what they would not bear in government. And he had a rare talent of prudence, or of timing, and adopting his measures to the attainment of this end. Collier says, to the Puritan mind, morality and politics were simply two different aspects of life. God had called Roger Sherman into politics. And throughout his life, he was faithful to that calling. Ezra Stiles, also the president of Yale, summarized Roger Sherman's life well when he said, he had that dignity which arises from doing everything perfectly right. He was an extraordinary man, a venerable, uncorrupted patriot. <coughs> and so we look to Roger Sherman, and we see in this man, a man thoroughly dedicated to the welfare of his nation, but a man who understood the welfare of his nation to understanding what the Word of God has to say, and a man whose loyalty is, first of all, to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his Word, and who believed that God has called some into the ministry, others into politics, and fulfilled his calling, and fulfilled it very well. A remarkable man, one that we should hear a lot more of. Every time you think about the two houses of Congress, think about Roger Sherman, because it is Roger Sherman the man who gave us the Great Compromise, or the Sherman Compromise, that did more than anyone else to bring that two-house Congress about. Welcome back.
back to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, often in this program, you will spend some time talking about uh, constitutional issues that have come up in, in current events. No court cases to talk about today, but there are certainly some constitutional questions over uh, vaccine mandates, among other ma- mandates. You're certainly correct on that, Ryan, that we're dealing with this issue. In fact, doesn't seem usually that medical issues are a primary thing that divides our nation. And yet, we are so divided over this issue about whether vaccination is a good thing and whether it should be mandatory. I don't think I've ever seen the nation so divided about a medical issue as they are about this. And, you know, I think one of the tragedies about this, Brian, is that we are not willing, and it seems most people today aren't willing to really look at this objectively. You know what I wish we could have in this nation right now? I wish we could have a nationally televised debate between a couple of the best qualified advocates of vaccination and a couple of those who are also very well qualified and who believe that vaccination is unnecessary, that it can have harmful effects, and that it is not a good idea. I think a good national debate would help to clear the air on this. And regardless of what the policy was, at least people would come away from that debate thinking, well, at least both sides have been listened to. But it doesn't seem like there's any debate like this taking place. In fact, I have to say, from my standpoint, it seems, is that the pro-vaccination people are the ones who are trying to force their will on others. And they don't want to debate the issue. They want to treat it as settled science, that vaccination is a good thing, that anybody who rejects this is anti-science and is simply unconcerned about the welfare of other people. I submit that that is simply not the case at all. There is growing evidence. There's a study in Israel, for example, and other growing evidence that suggests that A large portion of the population already has a natural immunity. They've been exposed to the COVID at one time or another, and perhaps have had COVID whether they realized it or not. And that this natural antibodies that they have as a result are more effective than vaccination. There is a suggestion further that those who have these natural antibodies can be harmed by taking the vaccination now. And with all of these things in mind, it seems to me there ought to be some serious considerations about whether or not vaccination ought to take place or whether it should be forced on people who don't want it. We have some who object to vaccination for medical reasons. They think it's not effective, or they think it's not necessary, or they think it could produce some harmful effects. And now we hear people saying that over 15,000 people have already died from effects of the vaccination. Now, that is possibly correct. Let me explain what we mean by that. There is something that you can look up if you go online. It is called the VAERS report. This is a government agency where V-A-E-R-S, and I don't even know right now, I don't recall what the initials stand for, but this is a government agency. And anytime there is vaccination, And within, I believe it's seven days after the vaccination, any effects, including death, 
need to be reported. Now, since the COVID vaccination has gone into effect, there have been more than 15,000 deaths reported. People who have died within seven days of taking the vaccination. Now, that does not necessarily mean that their death was caused by the vaccination. It could be coincidental with something else. However, in similar epidemics where we've seen widespread vaccinations, we have not seen a similar uptick in numbers of deaths afterward like these. Now, the figures I'm giving you are a few weeks old, but in addition to 15,000 deaths, we were also seeing over 400,000 adverse reactions of other types. And again, there are good reasons to think the vaccination might not be a good idea. There are good reasons for a person to be concerned about taking that vaccination, especially, let's say, if that person has COPD or another condition like this that might lead to breathing problems. There are some good issues, some good reasons back and forth. And there is a growing group called frontline doctors who are objecting to this vaccination, who have several lawsuits going at the present time. And anyway, we also have going on in a lot of states, bills in those states to prohibit vaccine passports. That is bills that would prohibit employers from requiring this of their employees or businesses requiring this of their customers. Here in Alabama, we passed a law late in the last session last spring, and this law provides that the state may not force any employee to be vaccinated or refuse to hire any employee because he is vaccinated. And the state also, rather businesses in the state, may not refuse service to any customers because they have not been vaccinated. It does not say that businesses may not refuse to employ unvaccinated people. That is left to the discretion of the employer. But we have one instance here that I've heard about in Montgomery of a doctor who has said that he will not treat any patients that have not been vaccinated. The way I read this law, he is in violation of that law. And there are similar statutes being adopted in many other states. States are handling this in different ways. And here is the interesting thing. We're seeing the D variant right now, as it is called, and a surge in that, although some say the surge has peaked and is now declining. We are seeing also upticks in cases in some states and not in others. And you know, from what I can tell, you look to the states that have strict requirements on masks and vaccination, lockdowns and so on, and the states that don't, and I think it is very hard to discern a pattern. Some would like to say those states that have really locked down on this, they've kept it under control better than those states that have left things open. But I don't see any pattern either way on this. Sometimes you see wide open states where there is a sudden uptick. Sometimes you see states where there's a real lockdown where you see quite an outbreak of the vaccination. It doesn't seem to be. And, and sometimes the statistics themselves are misleading. You are hearing, for example, that 
emergency room beds are being taken up by COVID victims. Primarily, they will tell you people who have refused to get vaccinated and got COVID as a result, although we're seeing many conflicting statistics on whether those who get vaccinated are less or more likely to come down with the disease than those who are not. Some will say also that vaccination has, does not stop you from getting COVID, nor does it stop you from spreading COVID because you can have it asymptomatically without knowing it and still be a spreader, but that it will lessen the symptoms. Now, if that is the case, I think you could make an argument that if it lessens the symptoms, vaccination then thus encourages the spread of asymptomatic COVID. And so a lot of arguments can be made back and forth like this. I have one case of a man in a Western state. His son is running a ranch there and has a poultry farm in addition to his ranch. And a federal official is telling him that, and, and there's a rule that they cannot be processing chickens without having a federal inspector present. And that they will not allow a federal inspector to be present unless all of the employees are masked. This man's son is saying that most of his employees would walk off if they're required to wear masks. But this is being applied because this is an area where there supposedly is a very high intensity of COVID, but it's out the rural area with such a small population that only two or three cases in that county would make that county in a high percentage. Anyway, so like I say, there are a lot of things to be concerned about here. I really wish people would start thinking about this more from the standpoint of we should, well, in fact, I'm going to just take the term that we use regularly, pro-choice. You know, we're <laughs> pro-choice on abortion. I'd say let's be pro-choice on this issue of vaccination. Let people decide for themselves. Ryan, it's been great being with you today and look forward to next week. Thank you.